Books and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. I can always count on my husband, a huge sci-fi and fantasy reader, to keep me up to date with some of the newest and most exciting authors in that genre. And when one of them is from our home state of Kentucky, you can be doubly sure Carrie and I will quickly ask for an interview. Our guest this week, Ashley Blooms, grew up in rural Kentucky, was a John Grisham Writing Fellow at the University of Mississippi, and worked for Tor.com, an online magazine that published a wide range of sci-fi fantasy short stories, commentary, and pop culture. Her debut novel, Every Bone a Prayer, was published last month, has been recommended by NPR and BuzzFeed, and has received praise from some of my favorite authors like Silas House and Alex Harrow. Ashley wants to make a space in Appalachian literature for more fantastical stories and not only literary realism that is usually the trademark of that subgenre. As a survivor of trauma and abuse in her own life, Ashley has created the 10-year-old protagonist, Misty, with unique sensory gifts that help explain what trauma feels like, how it changes a person, and how to move forward beyond it. Ashley talks to us about why the Goosebumps series by R.L. Stein made her want to tell stories of her own, how she uses trigger warnings to give control back to the reader, and why she doesn't categorize her book as a magical realism, even though it combines reality with fantastical elements. It is a beautiful, cool Saturday morning, mid-September. Amy's really good about finding people that we want to interview. I'm very excited. I have to hand it to my husband. He is very good about finding authors that maybe are not on my radar. So he is a big science fiction fantasy reader and he is on Twitter and he often sees what other science fiction and fantasy writers are talking about. And he said, hey, if you heard of this author named Ashley Bloom, she's a Kentucky writer and her new debut novel is getting lots of buzz. Ashley, she lives in Berea, Kentucky. She's a full-time writer and she has a debut novel called Every Bone a Prayer. So Ashley, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Tell us just a little bit about yourself and about your journey to becoming a writer. So I was definitely one of those writers who sort of always wanted to tell stories and grew up being encouraged to tell stories, but I didn't initially seek out writing when I started college. I think a lot of kids who grow up poor, I felt a responsibility to find a career that would be financially stable, so that would allow me to help my family become more financially stable. So I'd been told my entire life that writing or the arts were really not the way to do that, so I initially majored in psychology which I thought would give me the stability that I was looking for, but also allow me to help people as well. And I very nearly followed through with that. It wasn't until my very last semester as a psychology major that I switched to creative writing, which really threw a wrench in my graduation timeline. But (laughs) it was something that I really had to do in favor of my fulfillment and my happiness. So after undergrad, 
I applied for MFA programs and I got into the University of Mississippi as a John and Renee Grisham fellow, which was a wonderful opportunity. I graduated there in 2017 and Every Bone of Prayer was my thesis novel uh, at the program. So after I graduated, I spent a couple of years as an adjunct in the Department of Writing and Rhetoric. So I was teaching Writing 101 and 102 to freshmen. And as I was doing that, I was also revising Every Bone of Prayer and going through the process of finding an agent. I signed with my agent in 2018. We revised Every Bone of Prayer for a few more months after that and then signed my book deal in 2019. And Every Bone of Prayer was published just last month. You mentioned the transition, you know, deciding to become a writer. So as a child, were you a big writer then and were you a big reader? Tell us a little bit about your childhood reading and writing life. I was a huge bookworm as a kid. I was sort of the only one in my family who went in that direction. I remember my sister, she was a couple years older than me, so she was ahead of me in school. And she started bringing home those books on tape that would teach kids Mm -hmm. how to read. And she would supposed to be listening to them and practicing with them for homework, but I would do it instead because I was so desperate to learn how to read. I thought it was just the greatest thing. And so I was always very much drawn toward that direction. And I was always telling tall tales about how bears would come down out of the mountains and pack me away and all the things that I would do. And my papa was very encouraging of this. I used to sit on the porch swing with him as a little girl, and he would just egg me on and have me build these elaborate stories. And so storytelling became this thing that made me feel very special and happy. And that was definitely fostered when I was in school. I was really lucky to have a lot of wonderful teachers and librarians that encouraged me to read and encouraged my writing and were always putting books in my hands. The Goosebumps books were huge for me as a kid. They were some of those the first books that really made me feel understood. So I was growing up in a difficult home situation, and I found these books with kids who encountered monsters that none of the adults can see or none of the adults believe to be real. So the kids have to learn how to fend for themselves. And so it was really empowering as a little girl growing up with monsters of my own in my life to see these kids overcoming and fighting back the darkness. So I think really those were the books that made me want to do that, you know, that made me excited about telling stories. So it was definitely a part of my life from when I was very, very young, and I was lucky to have people who were very encouraging and supportive of that. So I'm wondering who your writing influences are. I mean, you grew up in rural Kentucky, and in your debut novel, Appalachia makes a strong appearance. It's like another character. So are there any Appalachian authors who have influenced your writing? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of Appalachian writers who have been influential to me. Appalachia has a really deep well of incredible writers that I really drew from. Dorothy Allison is one that immediately jumps to mind. Silas House, James Still, Crystal Wilkinson, Robert Geip. Uh, Elizabeth Catt writes some really wonderful nonfiction about uh, Appalachia. Her book, What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, is really fantastic. And then there are poets like Nikki Finney, Bianca Spriggs, Frank X. Walker. You know, Appalachia literally has a poet collective called the Afrolachian Poets, which is just teeming with incredible talented voices and it's still very much a present and growing collective. There's definitely a lot of voices that I got to draw from and and be supported by. In your debut novel, Every Bone of Prayer, and I should say Amy read it, I am probably about seven chapters in. So 
when she was talking about your novel, she was having a hard time explaining it to me. and She was having trouble summarizing it. So we think it would probably be better if you, as the writer, and we also don't want to give too much away. So describe your book a little bit for our listeners. I think any description is always going to leave a little bit out, <laughs> but I'll try to give the idea. So Every Bone of Prayer is about a 10-year-old girl with a special empathic ability that allows her to talk to the world around her. So she can talk to the trees, the crawdads in her creek, the trailer that she lives in, but not to her family. So when her parents seem to be on the verge of divorce, Misty decides to learn more about her ability and try to find a way to speak to her family. She believes that if she could talk to them the way that she talks to the rest of the world, then she could bring them all back together. But in learning more about this ability, she becomes entangled with the story of a woman who went missing several years ago, and she starts to learn about the cycles of violence and abuse that exist in her community until she becomes part of those cycles as well. And she really has to find a way to break away from all of that and doing so hopefully help her family and her community break away from it as well. Say, so At the beginning of the book, you have an author's note, and it's basically a trigger warning for readers that the book contains depictions of sexual abuse between children, body horror, and domestic violence. And in our current climate, trigger warnings sometimes get mixed reviews. But in interviews, you have said it was extremely important to you to have that in your book. Can you talk to us about that? Absolutely. Yeah, I knew that I wanted to include trigger warnings very early on. And it was something that I talked to my agent about whenever we first started working with Sourcebooks, who is my publisher. And it was something I was a little worried about because of the way that trigger warnings have been talked about culturally in America for the last couple of years. I worried that we wouldn't get support from the publisher. And then, you know, I ended up going to my editor, Shana Dres at Sourcebooks. And the moment that I proposed it, she was totally on board. Sourcebooks has been very supportive of the trigger warnings of the way that we've presented the book and have really allowed me to lead and, you know, have treated me with a lot of respect and care and the book with a lot of respect and care. I think that trigger warnings are generally misunderstood. They seem to have gotten this reputation for being a way to avoid or evade uncomfortable topics, which I think in itself is rooted in some very ableist ideas about the fact that people should be forced to engage with difficult material as though that is the best way to do it. But in my experience, trigger warnings actually allow me to engage with uncomfortable topics in a safe way. So I use my experience as someone with PTSD who benefits enormously from trigger warnings to craft the letter that appears at the front of the book and then the more detailed warnings that are available on my website. And the warnings are really about transparency and consent. One of the things that creates trauma is the inability to do anything about it. The fact that you are helpless to stop or change the situation that you are in. So that loss of agency is literally nearly or equally as traumatizing as the event itself. So trigger warnings try to give that agency back. They say, here is exactly what you can expect from this book. And now you get to choose how you're going to proceed in the way that is best and safest for you. So trigger warnings for me are a way to invite all kinds of different readers into the book and make room for all different kinds of experiences. They're really just indispensable for me as a writer. And there's something that I plan to include in my novels in the future. And I genuinely hope that other writers can use what I did, use it as a template. You know, it's open source. Hopefully people will learn a little bit more about how trigger warnings function so that it can become 
a little more mainstream and hopefully be a helpful tool for readers and for writers. So it's sort of like you're giving some control back to the reader. Exactly. Yeah. I've never seen it in any other books. I thought it was really unusual. Now, I read the author's letter at the beginning. I did not go to your website for more specific details. On your website, do you give particular chapters that maybe they want to be... Exactly. Yeah. So the website, it's broken down and the the way that the windows are situated, like you have to click on them to open it up. So if you don't have a particular trigger and you don't want to be spoiled for certain parts, then you can just not see that information at all. If you want, you only have to see the things that you personally need to see. And then once you open up the menu for that particular potential trigger, you'll see the chapter number and a brief description of what occurs. And that's really based on my experience with PTSD. You know, I've seen some trigger warnings that are just very general. It's this movie contains sexual assault. And it's like, well, that means I may not watch that movie at all. But if someone says, well, there is a graphic sexual assault scene 30 minutes into it, then that means that I can fast forward or I can leave the room or I can turn away, can skip that moment if I need to, but I can still engage with the film as a whole. By being more specific, by giving those more sort of granular details about where the events occur, I hope that it helps people not have to turn away from the book completely, but be able to really specifically engage with it in the best possible way. The idea that comes to me is performing surgery with a small surgical knife as opposed to a hacksaw. (laughs) If you give people the tools, then they do have the option, depending on how severe and whatever their feelings are. If you're not specific, they might not feel that they can even delve into it. When ultimately, if they're able to just get past a certain part, there can still be a lot of resonance in their life and healing potentially from whatever it is they're viewing or watching. So I I like that idea that giving a little bit of power back to the reader. Amy and I started to have this conversation before we were recording. We said, what is the actual definition of magical realism? Because we tend to look at your book as magical realism, but you may not actually like that terminology applied to your book. So can you define magical realism? And do you think that that is what your book has in it? I definitely think that magical realism is the term that people are most familiar with. And one of the things that I've learned as I've sort of navigated this conversation is that a lot of our terminology just isn't that great for this particular genre. (laughs) And so we don't have a lot of terms. So the terms we have will often feel like almost descriptive, but not quite the same. So, So I don't personally label my work as magical realism. And that's because of the history that is associated with that term. So from my understanding, magical realism as a literary movement was popularized by Latin American writers who were responding to colonialism as it was happening to them. So magical realism became this way to engage with, they were being colonized, these strange things were happening, you know, children would go missing in the middle of the night, but then that reality would be denied by the government, be like, that isn't happening, that isn't the truth. So there was gaslighting that was happening on this societal level to these people as they were being colonized. And magical realism became a way to respond to and subvert all that was happening. And that's not a history that I share. That is not what my style is born out of. That is not my experience in the world. 
And it's a term that just doesn't feel right to use when that is the history that's attached to it. And so I, I generally use fabulism or like fabulist, or I'll use slipstream, which is another term that gets at the same thing, which is just this blending of a realistic setting with surreal or strange or fantastical elements. I've never heard of fabulism, so I'm, I'm adding a new term to my toolbox. Yeah. Would you consider it speculative fiction? Absolutely. I've had it called literary, speculative, or speculative, and I'm fine with all of those terms. So in the book, the main character, Misty, she has the ability to talk to things in nature, such as the crawdads and the trees, but also inanimate objects like the doorknob of her trailer. And after reading your book, I was really blown away by how effective it was to use this fabulism as a way to convey a story of sexual abuse and how it transformed the victims. And I've read other books about sexual abuse and none of them have had the same impact on me as far as really letting me feel like I could experience what it must feel like to a child or any victim of abuse emotionally. And I'm wondering when you were thinking about writing this story, did you always intend to write it with a magical bent to it? I did. Yeah, I always knew that this would be a book with fantastical or strange elements, a book that would blend lots of genres together. And a big part of that came from wanting to capture the experience of trauma, you know, as it happened in the moment and get that on the page. Trauma is incredibly disruptive. It fractures our experience, our relationship to our bodies, our relationship to other people. The symptoms of trauma or PTSD are often very surreal when you experience them. You know, flashbacks can be this time travel that thrusts you backward into the most painful moments of your life. Dissociation can make you feel like you're watching yourself from outside of your body. So to me, those fantastical elements become a way to get even closer to the lived experience of the trauma. So you're using the surreal to get closer to the truth or the unreal to get closer to the real. And I think it can be incredibly effective. And I hope that it is effective in conveying what it is like to be overwhelmed by an experience and to not really know how to make sense of that or fully understand what is happening. One of the things that I felt like I could relate to. Now, I have not experienced trauma or sexual abuse, but I do have OCD and my son has OCD. And maybe this is more of the empathy piece, but I notice that Misty, this concern about relating to inanimate things, which sometimes that can be something that people who have OCD do. For example, I know when I was a kid, if I was reading the comic strips in the newspaper, I would read all of the comic strips, even the ones I didn't like because I didn't want to hurt their feelings. And I noticed Misty checking doors. So things that maybe weren't intentional, maybe weren't things that had that OCD bent, but I was reading it last night going, wow, this feels like I can relate to this, not because of the trauma piece, but the OCD and that empathy and worry. So I just thought that was interesting. I don't know if you have ever had anybody say that to you before. I haven't, but I think that's really interesting. I mean, I think there's a lot of overlap between a lot of experiences, especially like with mental illness or with trauma. I think there's just a lot of commonalities that end up coming up. So it doesn't shock me necessarily to find that there's some some common ground there, but it does make me happy to hear that. So there's a scene in the book where Misty's in the forest and she is emotionally hurting. She's not sure if she can continue on. And she sort of encourages nature to fill her body. I'm going to read the quote from the book. 
She stuck the green things in the gaps between her bones. She replaced the tendons with maple leaves and two long strands of supplejack that she wound around each knee, filled her ribs with wisteria and spread mud around the sockets of her eyes to catch the pollen and the dust floating by. Lightning bugs drifted around her, blinking their sleepy lights. She caught them and brought them to rest in her body, let them climb over her bones and her blooms, giving off faint yellow light that pulsed like a heartbeat until she was almost whole again. So that passage really struck me. And we've interviewed another Kentucky writer, Bobby Kahn, this year. And she said that she thought that writing about Appalachia was right for using fantastical elements. And I'm wondering if you agree with that. I do. I do think that Appalachia invites a lot of strangeness and fantasy elements for a lot of reasons. I think there's a lot of folk stories and long family histories around here. I often heard stories about people who had lived generations ago or even just a few years ago, but a lot of those stories were sort of full of gaps where no one was quite sure what happened or there was conflicting accounts of what had happened. So there's a way that those kind of stories invite the listener to fill in that information with whatever they want. And there's also a lot of superstition and a strong religious influence. So I know that I grew up in the Pentecostal church and it definitely influenced the way that I see bodies as permeable things, like things that can be joined or transformed or sundered with speaking in tongues and being filled with the Holy Ghost. I mean, there's literally something called a Holy Ghost, Mm -hmm. which is just, it seems like an invitation, you know, to go a little further. And then I think the geographic aspect also has a hand in that. So I think there's really a natural transition to infuse Appalachia with surreal elements. And it's really one of my hopes with my own work is to make room for those kind of stories that blend genre elements that or that are more squarely fantasy or science fiction. I think that Appalachian fiction is often associated with literary realism. I think that's been the dominant mode for a lot of it for a long time. But there's so much room for so many other kinds of stories here. What Amy just read, there's so much just beautiful imagery and it's all very sensory focused. And it's almost like the reader could feel like overwhelmed with sounds and images and tactile impressions. And that's probably how Misty feels and and anybody really who is very empathic to be kind of overloaded with feelings and the senses. So is that something that is part of your writing style in general, or is that something that's very specific to this book? I think it's a mix of both. I'm definitely a writer who appreciates beautiful prose and really loves to write on a sentence level. But I also think that particular element got enhanced for this novel because of Misty's particular way of connecting with and seeing the world. Uh, I'm working on my second book right now, and I can definitely feel the prose being paired back because I'm just with a different character this time around who has a different perspective and priorities and a different story to tell. Well, that kind of brings me to another question I have, because this book deals with a very traumatic subject. It has very heavy themes, but there's also a lightness to it. You know, there's the beauty of the landscape. And Misty has a whimsical relationship with her surrounding at times. And so I wondered if this was a conscious decision. You hear lots of writers say that the characters tell them where the story is going to go or how the story is going to proceed. So did Misty lead you in the tone of the story? Because you were just saying that in your next book, you just have a different character. And so the writing is different. Yeah, I definitely think that Misty made room for tenderness and whimsy within the narrative, despite everything that's going on in her life and there's a lot going on she's still a child and she's a very curious and thoughtful and empathetic child 
So just following her perspective and trying to stay close to her, I think very naturally led to moments that were much lighter in tone than other parts of the book. And I think that she was a great character to follow in part because of that. So it was definitely, at least partially, just an attribute of hers as a character. I definitely was also a conscious choice. Like I know that this was going to be a difficult story to write and a difficult story to read at times. And I think it's really important for me in writing about trauma to not center just the hard parts, you know, not to focus solely on the pain and definitely to never do that in a gratuitous or sensationalized way. I think that that often happens too much in in different media, that a, a person's experience can become whittled down to just the worst moments in their life. But our lives are so much more than that. And there's so much more important things than just the pain that we have survived, right? There's more important things than just our ability to endure. So it was really important for me to also include the moments of, of happiness and tenderness and sweetness that Misty's relationship with her cousins played a great role in that and showing this alternative set of relationships and way of relating to people that she has with her cousins. Her love of the natural world also opened up a lot of opportunities to show some magic and some lightness. So it was really important for me as a writer to take all of the opportunities that I could to make this story as multifaceted and multidimensional as possible. When Amy was writing up the next question, she was talking about Misty and the whole communicative element of naming and that she shares her name with the things that she talks to and then they share their name with her. And so her name when she's talking to the trees includes images or words that express her memories and those make up who she is. So her name's not just Misty, like, hi, I'm Misty. It's a compilation of memories, like her dad moving out and the crawl dads crawling over her fingers and all the experiences she's had that have made an impact on her. So when Amy was writing this question up, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so now that I've started reading it, I totally get it. I understand. But it could be potentially confusing to listeners who don't have a context yet. You know, they haven't picked up the book. So talk to us a little bit about names. Why are names so important? Names are something the book deals with a lot and sort of the difference between names and labels and the difference between being seen and being known and the impact that trauma has on the, the formation of our identity. So names in the book are really able to hold all of those conversations and reflect how complex our identity actually is and how difficult it can be to come to terms with the parts of ourselves that we don't necessarily choose on our own. So the names and the magic system around them were really a way to get at all of those topics and show the way that our experiences seep into every part of us and the way that trauma alters that, right? It alters how we see ourselves, it alters how we move through the world, and it can be really difficult to come to a place of acceptance and to feel as though our name, our identity, who we are really matches how we feel. And so there are a lot of complicated ideas that I wanted to get at, specifically about the way that trauma or traumatic experience alters who we are. And names and the naming system in the book was just a way to explore that. It was brilliant the way it did that. And so you write under a pen name and I'm just wondering, is that part of that as well? You're going by a name that, that means something to you. Yeah, I definitely think that my relationship with my own name 
especially as an expression of who I am, an expression of my truest self. So I grew up in a family that used a lot of nicknames. So like for most of my life, I was not called Ashley. I was called Blooms, which was a nickname that kind of came about from my grandmother because when I was little, I used to run around naked a lot and my mom had trouble keeping clothes on me. And my granny teased her about that one day and asked her why she never bought me any bloomers and bloomers being an old fashioned word for underwear. And so that got shortened from bloomers to blooms and it just stuck. (laughs) So my nickname is associated with this time in my life where I was really comfortable in the world and really comfortable in my body and very free and very unafraid. So as a survivor of sexual abuse and sexual assault, when I look back on that name, it holds a really particular significance for me, right? So this thing that came about in this moment of just sweetness and joking between my mom and my granny also immortalized this part of me that had a very different relationship to her body than the one that I would form over the years. So when I think about Blooms as a person, as a part of me, it really embodies some of the best characteristics that I can think of. And it embodies this time that I am always kind of moving back to when I felt at home in my body, when I felt safe, when I was not ashamed to be seen, right? When I was not ashamed of my body or how I moved through the world. And it is this kind of a freedom that that name holds for me. When I was going about publishing the book and I was thinking of what name I wanted to put out into the world, because I believe that words have power, that names have power. And if there is a kind of incantatory magic that comes from having your name repeated and said and claimed, then Blooms is the word that I want. Blooms and all that it represents is the part of me that I want to send out into the world. It is the part of me that I want to draw closer to every day of my life. That is the part of me that I'm always striving to return to. And so to have that name on the cover of this book, which is so much about that same experience, about how you come back to yourself, how you feel at home in your body, how you feel at home in your skin after you've experienced abuse. There's something really special and powerful for me as an individual to see the combination of those two things and to move forward in the world choosing the self that I want to be, choosing the way that I want to be seen and known. I think this whole idea is so relevant, not just to people who have suffered some type of trauma, but I think also individuals who's trying to figure out their life in some capacity, whether that's professionally or personally. I know I had a student who was struggling with gender identity and middle of the year made the decision, wanted to be called something different. It was just something that that was this individual's choice and I respected that choice. But I think culturally there's this big thing about names should be what you were given when you were born. I just think it's fascinating that something that seems as simple as naming is really complex. And it's not just, do you keep the name that somebody else gave you? Do you have ownership of your name? Should you have ownership of your name? And I feel like that's so relevant to so many people on so many levels, whether it's from a the lens of abuse and trauma, or whether it's just trying to figure out who they are as they go through the world. Yeah, I think there's definitely a relationship. And I think the thread that gets picked up on in the book is with queerness and names and identity. One of the things that we learn about names through the magic system is that things can be called outside of their name and that there's an element of control or manipulation 
that can be used if you know how to do it. And it's something that Misty learns how to do partway through the book. And she uses that on herself to transform herself. But we learn that when something is called outside of its name for too long, that it hurts that thing, you know, that there is harm that is done when something is not acknowledged or named or received as it is. And so I think, yeah, like, there's definitely a correlation between that and misgendering someone. You know, that is a violence to not see someone and accept someone and meet someone as they are, to not believe someone when they tell the truth about themselves and who they are in this world. And I, I definitely think there's a relationship between naming and queerness and coming to terms with your own identity and being able to stand in your truth, you know, even outside of as it relates to trauma or abuse, it relates to a lot of different things. So what's your next project? I am currently working on my second book. It is a standalone novel, so it's not related to Every Bone of Prayer. It's set in southeastern Kentucky. This time is told in first person point of view, so it's a little bit different of an experience writing it this time around, going from third person to first person. The main character is a young woman in her mid-20s, so we're also moving to an adult perspective. And I think that People who enjoyed Every Bone of Prayer will definitely find a lot of common ground in this next book. I don't want to give too much away because I'm still very much in the thick of writing it. But this time it's dealing with if Every Bone of Prayer dove into names and magic systems around names, then this book is looking at more of a, a portal fantasy and the idea of doorways into other worlds. And it's definitely dealing with addiction and drug use more, especially as it relates to southeastern Kentucky. There's also a romance storyline in this, which is something that I have not done before. I'm, I'm excited to see if I'm good at it <laughs> and to kind of develop <laughs> the relationship between the main character and their romantic interest. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. I'm right about halfway there. I have a deadline in November, so I'm barreling toward that deadline, but it's going well. I've been enjoying working on something new. Well, I'm definitely going to read it because I was really blown away by Every Bone of Prayer. I kept going on and on and on about it to Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. <laughs> So I'm totally in for this next one. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. Okay, we are back with Ashley and with Carrie. And I want to know, Carrie, what you're reading. So... Amy, you've been talking a lot about Catherine Applegate. Didn't she write? Mm-hmm. The yeah. one and onlys, yeah. One and only Ivan, one and only Bob, yep. Okay, it took me a while to make the connection, but my son, who's in fifth grade, his class is reading Home of the Brave, which is also by Catherine Applegate. Because he's reading it, I decided that I was going to read it as well. If you've ever read Karen Hess's Out of the Dust, which was written probably 25 years ago. This is similar in style. So it is a novel written as a poem. And it is about a boy from Sudan. His name is Keck. And he is a refugee who comes to the United States. I believe he's in Minnesota. It is the story of how Keck learns how to function in a new country. There's some unanswered questions. His father and his brother have been killed. They were killed in Sudan, and he doesn't know where his mother is. So this book, I loved it. I gave it five stars. I thought it was 
so wonderful. So Keck is learning English. And I, I just loved the perspective of how he looked at things, not just language, but lots of things for, through a totally different lens. I loved it at the very beginning. He says, the man gives me a fat shirt. And for a second, I was like a fat shirt. Well, it's a coat. <laughs> But I just love that it was called a fat shirt. So I love this book, but got on Goodreads and I was looking at what have other people said about this book? And what I was struck by, you know, most of the time people said it was amazing. They gave it four and five stars, but a number of people talked about how Catherine Applegate, she's a white female writer and can she get it right? Can she accurately and appropriately convey the story of this boy from Sudan. So that conversation reminded me of an episode of Hidden Brain Podcast, one of my favorite podcasts, but it is an episode just from this July. So it's fairly new and it's called Culture Wars and the Untold Story of Lindy B. Hawkins. Lindy B. Hawkins is a character in a book that's written for middle grade students. I have not read that book, but that entire podcast is about writers and what can writers write about? And so this idea of can you write about an experience that you haven't had? So I guess if you take this idea of if you're a female writer, can you accurately and appropriately write about the male perspective. And, you know, that would also go with if you're a male writer, can you accurately and appropriately write about the female perspective? So this book and some of the comments about it led me a little bit down this rabbit hole of thinking about should writers write about things that they haven't lived themselves? I tend to be like the idea that writers should be able to write what they want to write. You know, that doesn't mean there won't be fallout and there won't be opinions about that writing, but I tend to like to to support the idea that writers should be able to write what inspires them to write. So I don't know. I wonder, Ashley, do you have an opinion about that? I do. I think it's a really complicated subject and one that writers are feeling their way through now. And there's a lot of conversations around it, which is a great thing. You know, you mentioned, can women write from the male perspective or vice versa? Can men write from a female perspective? And the thing that complicates this even, even further is that there's specific power dynamics at play within every culture, within every group. You know, it's like women are often asked to empathize with, understand, and function through the perspective of men most of their lives because we live in a very patriarchal society. So women may actually have a lot stronger of an ability to write from that perspective because it's one that they have lived under a power imbalance that tips toward men, whereas the reverse of that is not true. So then what you get when you see male writers writing from a female perspective at times are these stereotypical or flattened or harmful representations of women that don't take into account the full humanity of women or the full lived experience because men are not often asked to empathize with, understand, or see the world from a female perspective in the way that women are asked to see the world from a male perspective. So the answer is not always a simple yes or no. And that goes for white folks who want to try to write for a character who has a different race or different religion or, or things of that nature. I think a lot of the conversations are often that I have seen are not like blanket statements of you cannot do this. It is about harm that is done when you don't do the appropriate amount of research or when you're maybe writing from that perspective for the wrong reasons. It's also a question of who's 
voices get elevated. So like when you have white writers who are writing with characters of a different race and those stories get published, those stories get big deals and a lot of support from their publishing house. But then you have own voices stories written from authors of color with characters who represent their lived experience that get a lot less attention, a lot less money, right? There's so many layers to this conversation. It would be nice to just be able to say writers can explore any angle that they want, but I think there's a lot more to it than just a desire to write from a certain perspective. It's can you do that responsibly? Can you do that without creating harm and forwarding stereotypes that cause real life damage to those communities day in and day out? You know, why are you wanting to write from that perspective? I think there's a lot of introspection that needs to happen, especially with writers who come from very privileged backgrounds. All excellent points. And that was what the hidden brain podcast talked about. And I thought it was fascinating. I mean, I love the book, but researching it gave me more things to think about. It was definitely a lot of good, thoughtful stuff for me to mull over. We're going to link that podcast in the show notes, right? Yes. Yes. Well, Ashley, what have you been reading? I've been reading a couple of books of nonfiction recently. One is called Radical Spirits, Spiritualism and Women's Rights in 19th Century America. And then I've also been reading Talking to the Dead, Kate and Maggie Fox and the Rise of Spiritualism. So you can see spiritualism is on my mind. It's something that I'm hoping to explore. And my third book, you know, I'm already thinking ahead of what I want to work on next. And spiritualism was sort of a kind of religious movement that came about. It talked about the ability to connect with people after they have died. So the ability to commune with the dead. And it gave rise to spirit photography, to seances. This was the time when seances would result in the ectoplasm or physical manifestations of spirit connection which is just deeply fascinating. One of the books, the first one that I mentioned, is a little more academic in tone. It's a different perspective than the second book, The Talking to the Dead, uh, which is about Kate and Maggie Fox, and it's more of a biography, but also just both are really rich with historical detail. They're just giving me a lot of ideas, and I'm taking a lot of notes. Both of them are got little sticky notes sticking out all over them, but it's been really fun. The tale of those two sisters is really fascinating. The story was, I think they were in Massachusetts or New York, and this was back in the 1800s and they said that there was a presence or a ghost in the house and everybody could hear knocks going on around the house and no one could explain where those knocks were coming from and then later in their life I think before they died they finally admitted that the sisters were making those knocks with the joints of their toes. Yeah, there was a controversy because one of the sisters actually recanted her statement of saying that it was, oh. you know, faked. So there's even more yeah. drama or unknown <laughs> It's been really neat. Did the books inspire the idea to write or did you have the idea and the interest and then you picked up those books to further your knowledge? Yeah, it was definitely, I had the interest and I had passing knowledge of spiritualism and sort of everything that went into it. And I'm always drawn toward the ones, you know, bizarre and magical topics, but also anything that makes room for bodily transformations or body horror and spiritualism definitely has a relationship with that so I just wanted to learn more especially as I started to consider writing the book set within historical context so writing the book set in the late 1800s or early 1900s I knew that I would have to do 
a little bit more research and get a little bit more familiar with the culture and the things that were happening as spiritualism sort of rose and fell. When you're reading for fun, do you normally read nonfiction or do you read fiction? Do you read horror, fantasy? What kind of things do you like to read? I read pretty broadly. And I mean, I consider the reading I'm doing right now sort of a mix. It's something that I'm fascinated by, but it definitely is research-based or fulfilling Mm -hmm. both roles. In general, I've also been reading a lot of romance lately. So I've finished Courtney Milan's Brother Sinister series recently, which was fantastic. And I tend to read very widely. So I love reading horror books. I love literary realism. I'll kind of hop back and forth between genres depending on my mood and and how long it's been since I've read a particular thing. Well, Amy, what have you had going on over there? Because there for like several days, you were reading Every Bone of Prayer. So I I think I forgot what you were going to talk about today. (laughs) Well, after our discussion that we had last week with our guest, Tabby Politsky, I became intrigued with Grimm's fairy tales. And I remembered that a few years ago, I had heard about a new translation of the Grimm tales from the original edition, and they were much darker than the fairy tales that we think of. I'd heard about it on the radio, and I bought it as a gift for my daughter because she loves things that are dark and twisty. Unfortunately, I don't think she ever really looked at it. It was published in 2014. She would have been about 11 when I bought that. In retrospect, it was probably a little bit too old for her, but I had it on my shelf. I decided to give it a look. And it's the complete first edition of the original folk and fairy tales of the Brothers Grimm. And it's translated and edited by Jack Zipes. And I believe that this is the first ever English translation of the original first edition. So the Brothers Grimm did about five different editions of their fairy tales. And the original edition was from 1812. And most people are familiar with the last edition that they did, which was from 1857. And by then they had revised the stories quite a bit. And the most famous of the stories that we know today are from that 1857 edition. But in the beginning, the Grimm brothers started it as an academic project, as a way to document a diverse collection of animal tales, legends, tall tales, fables, antidotes, and the magic tales from the region that we know as Germany today. And it was a way of preserving the literary folk history that was several centuries old. Some of those stories were meant for children, but most of them were not. And therefore, some of them are very, very dark. But over time and revisions, the Grimm brothers wanted to make them more palatable to the general public and for children. So they embellished them a little bit. They smoothed over the rough edges. So the stories in the first edition are much more frank and blunt while the grim tales that we know from the last edition are much more developed, fleshed out short stories. So for instance, something that you would have never seen in a later edition, but appeared in the original edition, it's a story called The Twelve Brothers, and there's a mean stepmother. But the story ends this way. Now they had to decide what to do with the evil mother-in-law. Well, they stuck her into a barrel of boiling oil and poisonous snakes, and she died a ghastly death. That's it. That's how the end of the story is, right? (laughs) Gruesome and abrupt. But it's funny to see how the Grimm brothers revised these stories, even ones that we know from the original telling, to the last edition. So if you take a tale like Rapunzel, and by the way, Rapunzel's named after a type of lettuce. I did not know that, but it was interesting. (laughs) Rapunzel is this beautiful maiden. She's locked into the tall tower with her long hair. Well, in the original tale, Rapunzel lets down her hair for a fairy who keeps her locked in the tower. And a young man in the forest witnesses this, asks Rapunzel to let down her hair. 
When he gets up to the tower, they have lots of sex. She becomes pregnant and this angers the fairy. Well, in the final edition, it's a witch who keeps her in the tower and the young man is a knight and he's very chivalrous and he helps her escape the witch and they get married and it's happily ever after. I don't remember any sex in that version either. No, but there was in the original. And so then there's the tale of Cinderella. And this one has some really funny changes as well. We all know the original story of Cinderella. Well, in the original tale, Cinderella, she is the beautiful daughter with a wicked stepmother and two mean stepsisters, but there's no fairy godmother. It's pigeons. (laughs) It is pigeons (laughs) who helps her out to become a princess with beautiful clothes each night for the ball. And the prince coats the steps of the castle with sticky tar. And that's what makes Cinderella's slippers stick to it and lose her shoe. And so when the prince comes to try to find the owner of the shoe, the stepmother tells her daughters that if the shoe doesn't fit, they should cut off parts of their feet to make it fit. So the older sister cuts off part of her heel and the younger sister cuts off a couple of her toes with a knife so that their feet will fit in these shoes. About 150 tales in this book. Some are very short and some are several pages long. I've probably read 20 to 25 of them so far. But it would be fascinating to study these, probably somebody has already, but to study these from a feminist perspective, because there's so many of the stories where the women lose their voices, usually by a curse. And I guess it stood out to me maybe because of the particular moment in history that we're living in right now. There are also illustrations in this book. You were saying last week, Carrie, that you had from the 1960s, a book from when you were a child that had beautiful illustrations in it. The ones in this book are by an artist named Andrea Deso, and these are black and white paper cut illustrations. And by paper cut, I mean, it looks like they have been intricately cut with scissors, like a very delicate paper snowflake. As a writer, I think it would be really cool, and I'm sure some people have done it, to take some of the lesser-known tales in this book and develop backstories for them. But I think about writers like Gregory Maguire, who take fairy tales and sort of make it their own. I think this book would be a, a great book for older kids or adults who are interested in fairy tales, but who like something that's not Disney-like. But it's definitely not really for younger kids. So are you going to try to throw it at your daughter again since she's 17? <laughs> Maybe. Uh, she's, <laughs> she's kind of past that now, you know. <laughs> but yeah, it was, it was really fascinating. I'm going to keep cool. reading them. Well, we're going to take a short break again. And when we come back, we're going to be asking Ashley Blooms her top five. are back with Ashley Blooms and we're going to ask her her top five. Question number one, you research crawdads while writing Every Bone a Prayer. So what is the top most fascinating thing about these creatures? I found a lot of interesting things about crawdads as I was doing research, but I think I especially liked learning that they are, and I'm not sure that I'll pronounce this right, but detritivores as well as omnivores. So in addition to eating plant matter and smaller creatures, they also eat dead leaf matter. So not just what grows naturally in the creeks, but as leaves and twigs and things fall from trees into the creek, they are part of what's digest and keeps that cleared away. So crawdads play a really important part in the health of their ecosystem. You know, they keep it from getting filled with this rotting organic Mm -hmm. material. And I never really knew that about them. And it gave me this appreciation for them. I think it's really easy to forget just how many creatures we share this world with and that even the smallest of them are part of what keeps our world functioning. And crawdads are part of that too. 
So you mentioned that you learned to play the penny whistle and the dulcimer in childhood. And the penny whistle has roots in Ireland and the dulcimer is the Kentucky state musical instrument. I didn't know until just right now that Kentucky had a state musical instrument. <laughs> <laughs> but music using these instruments has a strong history in Appalachia. So is there a top song, folk, instrumental that you feel encompasses a lot of what you think Kentucky is? So Cool of the Day by Gene Ritchie is a song that comes to mind. It's essentially about environmental stewardship, you know, and taking care of the resources and the people around us. But I also associate that song so strongly with Kentucky because I have this memory attached to it that really encompasses Kentucky to me. When I was attending the Appalachian Writers Workshop a few years ago, it's a week-long workshop that takes place at the Heinemann Settlement School in Heinemann, Kentucky. And a lot of writers make the pilgrimage there every year. It's the one gathering that they go to. So you'll have brand new people who come to the workshop, but you also have people who have been coming there for a decade or more. And so there's just this really strong sense of history and of place when you are at Heinemann and when you're at the App Writers Workshop. And it was getting toward the end of the workshop. So it was end of the week. And there was always that melancholy that comes with the ending of an experience like that. And a lot of us were sitting outside on this covered porch and there was a storm that was rolling in. And so the the sky was very dark, that greenish blue before a storm comes. And it was cool and windy. And one of the women there started singing Cool of the Day by Jean Ritchie. So she sang the first voice and then several other people joined her in the chorus just as the rain finally broke. And so the rain was just pouring down and there was this very haunting chorus being sung by all of these Appalachian writers. And it was just such a beautiful, enchanting experience. And it's hard for me to think of a song that feels more like Kentucky than Cool of the Day. Is the dulcimer a stringed instrument? I'm trying to picture what a dulcimer is. Yeah, it looks like a tiny guitar that you can lay on a table and play when it's flat out. And I think there's different iterations of it. But that was the kind that I learned on is, you know, you pluck the strings. And did I hear that you also have taken up the banjo? No, I hope to take up the banjo. That's one of my goals now that I'm back home in Kentucky is to find someone who very patient to teach me how to play the banjo. (laughs) I tend to spend most of my time reading instead of listening to music, but I want to bring up a Kentucky musician that literally discovered last night, Tyler Childers. He has a new album out that is predominantly instrumental. His new album is called Long Violent History, so I'm hoping to listen to some of that. Question number three, you're kind of a crafty person, so your favorite holiday or season to decorate for is Halloween. What is a top Halloween craft you have made that was the most fun? I've been making a lot of crafts this last month. I started decorating for Halloween early because I needed a little more joy in my day. Um, 2020 has been interesting. Yeah, it's been so, rough. Yeah. It has. We all need so, a little bit more joy in our day. Exactly. So my partner and I have been building bookshelves to go in our office, which has been an interesting task for two people who have never built bookshelves before. So we have had a lot of scrap wood from when we have messed things up and had to recut. And I took these very thin strips, it was maybe an inch wide of scrap wood, and they had very rough edges along the top. And I just painted them white and drew little ghost phases on them and glued them all together in a line. So it's like this little chorus of these tiny little inch, two inch high ghosts. 
and I sat them on top of our mantle. And it's just a tiny little thing, but it made me really happy. I think especially because scrap wood had this inborn limitations, the funky little shape that I didn't want to change. And the limitations can be really inspiring, I think. Do you tend to hang on to odd things thinking, maybe I can use this in a craft somehow. And then eventually you go through it and you go, what was I going to do with this stuff? (laughs) Absolutely. I hoard very strange scraps and, and ends of things and little fabric and oddly shaped things that I have. And I try to keep it all in this one little chest that I have, although sometimes there's an overflow issue, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Carrie likes to craft too, but what she does is she crafts one particular craft and she does it all the time for like three weeks and then she's <laughs> done with it. And then she moves on to a different one. <laughs> Just run it into the ground. <laughs> yeah. she, yes, she absolutely does. Yes. <laughs> it's that OCD. Like I obsess. I literally obsess about something. And then, I don't know, my medication kicks in and I go, I'm sort of over that now. So. <laughs> Question number four, if money were no object and you could open an artist retreat in the state, what's the top feature you'd want to ensure your retreat had for visitors who came to stay. So this is definitely one of my dreams is to open artist retreat in the future. And ideally it would be in the woods, surrounded by trees, you know, nestled in the Appalachian mountains. And I would love to be able to make space for different kinds of artists. So not just writers, but sculptors, glass workers, woodworkers, musicians, all different types of artists. And I would love for them to leave some of their work behind and to maybe even do like installations in the woods themselves so that when you walk into the space, it would feel very strange and otherworldly. You're entering this creative space that's re-envisioning what the world is and how we relate to it. That would be like the ultimate vibe that I would want. All right. Last question. Not only do you use writing as a creative outlet, but you've also taken up watercolor painting. So what is the top hardest thing about using watercolors and what kind of scenes do you like to paint? I've definitely found patience to be the hardest thing about (laughs) learning how to use watercolors. I really believe that there's value in seeking out hobbies that you don't monetize and hobbies that you don't necessarily want to become an expert in. You know, I really like the idea of cultivating a beginner's mindset to be curious and humble before your art. But it can also be really hard to do that, especially when you've gotten good at something, you know, like I feel like I'm good as a writer. And so to go to being terrible at something (laughs) is a kind of a hard (laughs) adjustment to make. So I struggle with being patient enough to show up at something that I'm not good at to do that consistently, which I think is actually really good for the soul to be in that space. And I find myself drawing a lot of landscapes, but also a lot of very sweet and cozy scenes like, you know, tiny little cottages or little mushrooms and things like that and so there's ways in which it makes sense when you look at my other creative work my writing but also it has a very different tone and style which is something that's really fun to explore yeah there's something kind of freeing about doing something and not being fantastic at it and being like I don't care exactly yeah like in doing it just for you not doing it to share to make money or anything but just because you feel happy when you do it once you start taking it too seriously it starts to lose some of the fun Yeah, I think. But there's actually a whole book about this. I think it's called Suck at Something, which I read recently. It's by Karen Rinaldi. But it's about all the things that you learn by pursuing something that you love, but that you suck at and that it teaches you a lot of life lessons. Well, Ashley, thank you so much for taking time out of your Saturday morning to speak with us. Yeah, thank you all so much for having me. Thanks for joining us today. 
For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.